television podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Lizzled on the Twitters. And I'm Ben Travers at Ben T. Travers on the Twitters. And happy Monday, or maybe even Sunday as you listen to this, uh, because we're going to be talking about a very, very fun episode of Sunday Night Television. Or, well, maybe fun's not the right word to use when describing the deuce. I'm going to have fun with it. You're going to try to talk about something else, but I'm going to bring it back to the fun stuff. What's the fun stuff? The fun stuff is twin James Franco's. Ah, yeah, I am going to try to keep us away from that topic. Though I, <laughs> though I do have to say, I love twin James Franco's. Twin James Franco's is I somehow d- better than just double the James Franco. Like yeah. it's not the same idea as if there was just twice as much James Franco in a movie, it would be better. It's it that that equation doesn't necessarily hold up, but. Twin James Franco's. Twin James Franco's. Two separate James Franco's characters coming together. That's material for gold. Um, like it is It is literally, it fuses together mm-hmm. and forms gold as if you found it at the base of a California canyon. Right. We should probably back up a little bit and explain what we're talking about. Um, the Deuce. The Deuce. Uh, the HBO drama that is uh, created by David Simon and... Guy's name I never say properly. George Pelicanos. Thank you. Um, and uh, Michelle McLaren directed the first episode. She'll be also directing the last episode. And it stars Monsieur James Franco. Twice over. Twice over. Pop de. Um, Wait, what are his character <clears throat> names again? Oh, shoot. One is Vincent. Yeah. One Vinny is Vinny. And Frankie? No. That can't be right. Hold on. I'll look it up. All right. He's going to look it up. But yes, Franco playing twin brothers. Uh, or actually, one of them, they might not be twins. One of them might be older. One of them might be younger. No, they're twins. They're twins for sure? Yeah. Okay. Because you thought, because we're not. I did make that mistake on Fargo. I was going to say we made that mistake on Fargo. It is Frankie. Oh. Vinny and Frankie. Vinny and Frankie. Good Nailed for them. It. For some reason, I figured, why would you name a James Franco character Frankie? That seems like a terrible idea. Well, I'm sure the part wasn't, well, actually, I don't know if it was not written for him, but I assume the part was generated pre-Franco commitment. Yeah. I mean, well, they're based on real people, right? I think so, to some degree. Maybe. 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 Um, Anyway, so The Deuce also stars Maggie Gyllenhaal and a couple of other really great people. Margarita Leviava? I don't know how to say it. Ben really likes her. Leviva. I I don't know. Leviva. I don't know how to say it. But I, actually, it was funny because uh, we included her. Basically, we did this list. I, we'll go back to her in a minute, in a minute because I, I do actually have a, something I like about her a lot. Um, Everything. Well, I mean, she's great. I, well, the thing I was going to say was uh, when for during our fall TV preview coverage, uh, we made a list of top breakout actors. And at that point, Ben was the only one who'd seen a lot of the deuce. So we just kind of had a placeholder on that list of because we knew there were a lot of unknowns in the deuce. There was likely going to be a great performer among some who definitely should stand out. And so we just kind of like put on the brainstorming list, the, the deuce placeholder Ben here like and then Ben came back with... I was the breakout star of the deuce. Yes. And then Ben came back with the actual person who was actually in the show. And when I finally got around to watching, I was like, Ben made the very correct call. I did it. Though Dominique Fishback is also really good. It was literally between those two. But she's... Yeah, she plays... Uh, but anyways, we're, we're listing actors, but the real point of this is that this is a show about um, the 1970s uh, porn industry in New York City. Kind of. Kind of. It's kind of about. It's kind of about porn. It's kind of about. Takes a while to get to the porn. Takes a while to get to the porn. It's kind of about uh, prostitution in New York City. It's kind of about, you know, just kind of trying to do business and the corruption that was, you know, Times Square at that time. Like, it's a story about New York at, at its dirtiest and, but some would maybe argue most interesting. I feel like there were a lot of like love letters to cla- to nineteen to nineteen seventies New York that were written. Um, like decrying the fact that it no longer is gritty and dirty and all that. Very much so. Yeah, a lot of old school New Yorkers miss the days of well, I mean, dirtier streets, I guess. Yeah, the non-Disneyfication of Times Square, I think, is the way I've seen it. But. That is a, a, a popular way that's been put. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, and it's it's something that's been the focus of obviously many films from the period, but also a lot of uh, period films where they go back to explore this kind of thing, as well as obviously. HBO's last big drama series, Vinyl, which was canceled after one season, but Martin Scorsese tried to, you know, capture the same spirit. Uh, I've 
actually just recently got into a discussion with somebody about whether Scorsese's directorial style and the amount of money they put into vinyl to capture the aesthetic of this period was as good as what they did at the deuce and i argued that the deuce was better i like michelle mclaren's direction much more than i like scorsese's like scorsese's is obviously always strong always interesting always uh compelling his was you know drug fueled supposed to mimic you know cocaine addiction to some extent uh so it was a lot of frantic quick expansive because he could build the sets uh shots but mclaren's is beautiful and and the way she introduces the city um is magnificent because it never overwhelms the characters uh but it always really builds them up in a fascinating way and and you get a great sense of place when you're in that pilot both when he's walking down the main strip Mm -hmm. and you see the xxx theaters you know lining down the street uh, both with the lights above him, uh, from like panning up from his shoes. I think I've mentioned his shoes probably far too many times, but uh, it, it's it's really beautifully done series. And um, yeah, we're gonna talk about it. Yeah, uh, I think the uh, the thing the thing about the interesting difference between vinyl and uh, the Deuce for me is vinyl was very focused on Bobby Cannavale, and that's not a bad thing. I love Bobby Cannavale. He is uh, one of the one of the most interesting changes made uh, or additions to Mr. Robot in its upcoming season three, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. Great character in Master of None season two as well. Oh, God, he's amazing in the show. Yeah. Like, I mean, not in a good way necessarily, but definitely a great character. Right. He's amazing. Uh, yeah. the, the character is, is intentionally problematic. Yes. Um, but he's a terrific actor. Yeah. Uh so that's no, nothing against him, but the problem with Vinyl was that it was very focused around his character and kind of like yet another, you know, male, yet another anti-hero white male protagonist. Uh, whereas the Deuce feels very much like an ensemble drama. Like even though it has like you know Franco and Maggie Gyllenhaal are no small small, small potatoes acting wise, but they. The, the, the other characters have equal weight in much the same way that a lot of uh, David Simon shows, even like something like Show Me a Hero, which ostensibly is all about um, the main character played by uh, Oscar, Oscar Isaac. Like even despite that, like it's still like all the side characters get development and get rich storylines. Uh, so that's just a feature of, I think it really the biggest difference comes down to the writing. Like if he, I, I wouldn't trade Michelle McLaren's direction for anything, but like the alternate universe where she directs vinyl and uh, Scorsese directs the deuce. I don't think the ultimate re- result would be that different in terms of success, just because I think it really came down to a narrative issue. Yeah, there were definitely script problems with vinyl. I, I'd argue that, that vinyl's presentation and direction were familiar mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the deuce, which is, even if the setting feels familiar, that's only because you've seen this setting before and they're capturing it extremely well, whereas right. the style in which it was presented, as well as uh, the writing, which enhances the ability to tell or to, to, to emphasize that style because you get to go to so many different street corners and in so many different buildings and uh, so many different uh, iconic New York locales. Um, because that's made available through the writing, that also enhanced the presentation of it. But yeah, McLaren, I, I really hope we're talking about McLaren at the Emmys come next year because this is outstanding work. That'd be amazing, yeah. Um, and so right now, as you listen to this, five episodes of The Deuce have aired. Uh, and we're going to try to keep this relatively spoiler-free, I think, because uh, for one thing, uh, I've only I've seen through episode five. Ben has seen the whole thing, correct? Yep. Ben is not... In, in that classic way in which one watches a lot of a show at once, like Ben is not totally sure necessarily if anything he says might be a spoiler. So we're going to kind of try to avoid that territory. Yes. Um, but to some degree. But one the thing I want to talk about, and the thing we'll see if Ben lets me talk about all that much, is how interesting the storyline is uh, surrounding Maggie Gyllenhaal's character of Candy, a.k.a. Eileen, I think? I forget her real name. Oh, um, shoot. I know this. Hold on. Hold, please. Uh, but anyways, so we meet we meet her as an independent prostitute, which means she doesn't have a pimp. Uh, it gets really into the pimps and, pimps and whores, like, tropes you might be familiar with from, like, you know, 70s exploitation films. Though, 
to its credit, like there's a greater depth of humanity involved in all that. Uh, and more importantly, uh, you know, we've got, but we've also got, uh, we've also got Candy as played by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who is, uh, who doesn't have, a, doesn't have anyone she's working for, essentially. Eileen is correct. Hooray! Um, who doesn't have anyone she's working for is, is thus kind of on her own and on the streets and subject to the dangers that come with that, but also very much in control of her own destiny to the degree in which anyone can be if they literally work a street for money. Um, and what I found really engaging in the episodes I've seen is the fact that this, this storyline takes a whole new turn when she discovers the joy of pornography. Well, <laughs> that is the, that is my, that's almost like stealing my joyful way of trying to frame things. She sees the financial opportunities within pornography as well as the, uh, I don't want to call it a safe haven, but a safer alternative to the work that she's doing. Uh, so it's a more profitable, more reliable, um, and possibly more, uh, it has more opportunities uh, for it, it creates more options for her yeah. in terms of what she can pursue as she gets more and more knowledgeable and invested in that world. Well, I feel that that's all definitely true. But I feel like it's also worth pointing out that one of the what, the thing that really hooked me on the show in general and also just her character is is like early scenes where she gets first gets exposed to like you know what 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 these people are doing like in basements and in back rooms with like a very cheap lo-fi camera setup and her, she's inspired like she's asking questions and she wants to know why did you use that side of the of the whiteboard versus this other side of the whiteboard why do you have the cam the lights set up that way like and I just really respond, like, there's something really beautiful about a, the story of, like, untapped potential, like, suddenly kind of getting unlocked, um, which I found, it's, it's, it's genuinely inspiring, especially because, you know, later on, she's, like, ta talking about not just, you know, she gets her initial exposure to the rising industry of, film, of, of pornography film is, like, being in one, which, you know, presumably if you're getting paid to do it, on in a, in a hotel room, getting paid to do it on camera isn't theoretically much different. I don't know. They do frame the the problem though in a, in in a very a clear light. I mean, they 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 bring out the difficulties that people have in in going through to the other side because the stuff that they can do in a hotel room can be hidden and and kept from mm -hmm. people, uh, including people that they know, but also just that. At the time when this was being created, there was a danger in giving yourself away like that because if somebody's got a picture or a video of it, they don't need you anymore. They've got it on camera. They can revisit it, or on film, I should say. They can And they can revisit it as many times as they want, and you don't make any extra money when they go back to revisit it. You got paid the one time, whereas... And they do address that with a different character. Yeah, uh, a few different characters. There's, there's a, a lot of skepticism involved in joining... When when Candy tries to recruit people, mm -hmm. there's a lot of skepticism from the people on the streets because even though it is, uh, you know, a safer and a, a more lucrative payday overall, um, it is they, they're they're nervous about giving it away like that. They're nervous about letting somebody just have what they've been selling mm -hmm. daily. Well, it's for, all, forever. And there's also the fact that at this very specific time in New, in New York City, it is illegal to to you know make or distribute pornography. They don't seem worried about that part, though. No, they seem a little worried. <laughs> they're not. They're not concerned with with uh, with illegality, uh, considering the system they've already established. I mean, it, it's it's it is like one of the most interesting aspects of the Deuce is kind of like this very loose relationship with what the idea of legal versus illegal is especially when it comes to people's vices and all that well yeah this and this brings us to the to the juxt of the conversation in which a lot of what the deuce focuses on is uh the patriarchal control over the sex trade so even though the sex trade uh in and of itself is dominated by women and men who are paying for them, the control over it, including the police who run regular sweeps that the, the prostitutes know are coming, 
uh, and they just deal with as part of their job. Uh, they have worked that out in a way in which the, the, the city and the male police officers and the politicians have all agreed to a certain thing. And then when that changes, which again, I don't want to talk too much about because I'm not sure when that happens in the show and I don't know if I'm spoiling things, but when that changes, that's addressed in a very specific way. Um, when you're talking about the pornography industry and how Candy wants to break into it, even though she's first a star, she's learning all of these things, but she has a hard time getting to the point where she is a behind-the-camera benefit as well, where she's trying to become turn into that producer role, but that's something that's dominated by men, and the men who have those jobs are holding on to them in a certain way, and that's, again, they're the ones who are going to profit in the long term, and she sees that they're the ones who are going to profit in the long term from this kind of thing, just like Franco's business starts to turn a little bit into men controlling the sex trade. We get a lot of stuff about the pimps and their control over this and their cut when it comes to what's going on on camera. So there's all of these men who are telling women what to do and are benefiting in the long term from what they're doing and are keeping themselves out of danger. Mm -hmm. So the pimps are the ones who inflict damage on people. Uh, the politicians are the ones who are controlling the legality of everything and benefiting from kickbacks and cuts. The cops the same way. Um, and all of these people are, are men. And it's, it's a weird, horrific power dynamic. And mm -hmm. you're watching what's fascinating about Candy's journey is she's really trying to take on a role not only that, that somebody in her position wouldn't normally be able to do, but she can be seen as somebody who is, is a female filmmaker who's trying to break into a world that is, she's not allowed in. And, mm -hmm. and, and at that time, certainly most women were not allowed in that inner circle even in you know a porn versus yeah. non-porn arena so it's it's there's a lot of interesting dynamics that go on in that vein no absolutely um and it's worth noting that uh within the adult within the adult entertainment industry in all as it's evolved over the as it's evolved with technology over the years uh, this is a battle that has continued and oh, yeah. a, a really like a, an interesting way to an interesting portrait or an interesting set of portraits into this is uh, Rashida Jones's uh, documentary series Hot Girls Wanted, which looks at a bunch of different ways in which like sex has a transactional element, or there's a transactional element to sex and relationships, um, including like I think there's at least two episodes covering cam girls, but like there's like the cam girl who operates on her own terms and doesn't <clears throat> rely on anyone else, and then there's the 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 there, then there's like a house of cam girls who like have this like guy who runs them essentially and like serves as kind of like, you know, he, I don't think it, it's like, it's, it's a sleazier environment. Like the, the fact that se the sex industry has often been about women, it's, it's, it's often about selling men, selling women. And it, it, to put it very, very bluntly has always been a really interesting dynamic. There's like, especially like when you consider that there's, there are a number of women working as essentially porn stars who have worked really hard to create their own brands and become become basically their own businesses and become entrepreneurs and branch out beyond just having sex on camera. Um, and I feel like, and the other interesting element, I don't know how much later episodes get into it, but I'd be fascinated by it, is um, one, of, one of the golden rules, I think, of, of understanding media and technology and their relationship is where goes porn, so goes the industry. Um, and one of the... E one, I don't I don't know if this this is the only reason for this, but I certainly have heard that or heard and read that one of the reasons why um, in the if you if you're old enough to remember this, God bless you, um, if you remember the fact that at one point in time there was a battle between Betamax and VHS and uh, like as two different tape formats, and Betamax was I believe technically of better quality than uh, VHS, like the, and that's in fact why some people still use beta for a long time after VHS became the commonly accepted uh, home entertainment format. Um, but porn decided to go with VHS and thus VHS won that battle. Uh, same thing happened with DVD versus HDD, HDVD I believe. Um, or not, no, I th is it HDVD versus Blu-ray, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it was HD DVD. HD DVD versus Blu-ray. Blu and I think I think porn chose Blu-ray. And also... Well, the polite the polite uh, accepted modern standard is, is that 
Blu-ray chose the PS3, and the PS3 is what changed things. But I think ah, the, no, I think the that's actually you're probably you're probably more correct. I actually actually still a porn port- related. It's still porn related. Also, porn in HD is a whole other conversation. True, uh, but again, the internet exists, and we probably have pornography pornography to thank for a lot of that. Yeah, and, and there are there's definitely technology discussions in in the Deuce in which they they show kind of how these videos were seen um, and and what made them acceptable and also the changing laws when they realized how profitable this business could be. Because again, when something was deemed obscene or unnecessary and it was that's all there was to it, then they, they just kicked it out. They just didn't let it happen. But as soon as there's a, an opportunity for profit, which again is part of the patriarchal regime like that's that's just part of it they're the ones at the top making the laws so they're the ones who are deciding who gets to do what um as soon as there's an opportunity for profit they start changing things and there's an interesting there's a great discussion um kind of between between a few different factions within Mm -hmm. uh the deuce where they get into the why and there's people asking questions about why and there's never a blunt answer to it there's never somebody who's just like well money or, well, they saw an opportunity here. It's just kind of an accepted reasoning of that's why we're all here. And there's a lot of, a lot of that within the show. A lot of it is people just doing whatever they can do to make a living. Mm-hmm. And that's the heart of the matter. And they, they, they bring that back enough where the deuce always feels like it's a very personal story. Um, even when it's dealing with very, very big issues. So that's that's part of the beauty. And then, you know, the other part is just there's two James Francos guys. And, and one of them is <laughs> like, you know, Vincent is – wait, which one's the shitty one? <laughs> well, they're both, I think uh, – But one's really overt about it. I think Frankie is the one who actually owns the bar. I can't get it written. Hold on a second. Oh, this is not helping. Anyway, let's say let's say I think I think Vincent is the good one. Let's say Vincent's the good one, quote okay. unquote good one. He's 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 a very kind of classic macho character. He's very comfortable. Vincent is the one who owns the bar. Great, Vincent's the one who owns the bar. Franco plays him with this kind of beleaguered charm. He's he's you're, you're introduced to him when he's you know working seven nights a week uh, on either side of the river, as I believe he puts it. Um, so he's he's obviously got reason to be beaten down. But, but, but when he gets an idea in his head, he's proud of it. And you kind of see that come across in the way that he knows it's not going to get much bigger than that or it's not going to get much better than that when, he's, when he kind of gets more introduced and in, intertangled with the mob part of the story. You also see him as being skeptical, like there's there's elements of it, and again, usually goes back to the money that makes him happy that he's pleasing these people in that way and that he's benefiting monetarily. Um, but he's he's always a little bit fraught. He's he's a little bit worried. He's a little mm-hmm. bit um, just just beaten down by by everything that's been going on around him. And then he's juxtaposed brilliantly by <laughs> fucking fucking Frankie, who just comes in you know first scene he just slams his arm on the window of the of the bar uh yeah. then he sees him and just just like rolls his eyes and starts walking away and frankie just comes popping in sits down on the bar stool gives him a bunch of shit and you know they're both grinning by the end of it but frankie's got this infectious enthusiasm uh where you can obviously see how they're brothers and how they're connected the accent work is really really good uh obviously they look alike so that's not really a factor but um, there's a demeanor in which they interact with each other, which is just outstanding to me because they're obviously never interacting with each other, on, like when they're shooting. Right. Um, because they they bounce off each other so well, and and the, part of it's the writing, but a lot of it I feel is Franco's commitment to each side of this, which he is willing to take to certain extremes, but they're very subtly drawn out. Like mm-hmm. they're like it is that I, you never feel like Frankie is just endlessly excitable or more optimistic or some sort of crazy dreamer who thinks mm-hmm. he's going to escape this. He's he's They're both very much embedded in this world and they're staying there. Mm-hmm. But 
Frankie sees it as like any one day he's going to make $10,000. And if he loses it all the same day, it doesn't matter. It's just part of it. And he's going to run with it. Whereas that mentality to Vincent is agonizing. It just brings him down. It's like, I, I can't believe I'm doing this. And it's, it's amazing, too, in that first episode where trying to put yourself in, in, in Vincent's shoes when a mobster comes to you and says, listen, your brother's got a debt. He owes us $20,000. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> you see that in another movie, and the it's the, uh, the spurn to where they they either break up and they hate each other, and he just throws them under the bus, and his brother gets shot, or they both go on the run. But, you know, Vinny just looks at him and says, all right, I got a lot to think about. Give me, come back tomorrow. When I'm not so busy, we'll talk it out. The guy comes back. He just walks over. He's like, all right, I can give you 1000 a week but I can't do the extra blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just this business transaction. It's, it, again, comes back to the basis of money. And Vincent is seen as the responsible brother who's cleaning up, you know, Frankie's mess. But at the same time, he almost just accepts it as part of their dynamic, as part of something that he knows his brother is going to do. And this is now just another part of his life. And he never expects Frankie to pay him back. And it's not really a motivation for some sort of battle between the brothers, nor is it a huge plot line in the show. It's just introduced to it's just introduced to bring these groups together mm-hmm. and to introduce Frank or Vincent to the mob who now wants the brother and then all three of them and it's it's a great performance i i will say one of the thing one uh, there are a couple of different things that hooked me on the show uh, and one of them was definitely i can't remember the exact i think it was i think it's early in the season but it, there's just this one scene where you see Vincent watched Frankie goof around and he's just smiling in that way in which it, it where it's just like yeah he's an idiot but he's my brother and I love him mm-hmm. and there was something so real and genuine about that that really just got me in a it, it got me in a way it was fun like I like watching t- it's like it's like when you watch a sitcom and you see it's like I feel like the best sitcoms are sitcoms where like the characters will acknowledge, like, hey, that person told a funny joke. It's not just people slinging around quips. You understand that, like, these people like each other and they enjoy each other's company, and that's what makes them feel like real friends or real family. And I think that's that was a big part of that sequence. Um, and at the same time, they still have a lot of scenes in which you see Frankie's disregard for responsibility eat away at Vincent. And if it's oh, yeah. the wrong day or the wrong time... He is nothing but annoyed with his brother. Right. And he's angry about but it. But that's what makes it all the more profound when it does work out. Um, here's a, que- a question you may not know the answer to. Have it, has uh, Franco talked at all about like his, his acting doubles he works with? Oh, I don't know. Okay. No. Because I, it's an interesting, it's just interesting to me because, uh, so Tatiana Maslany, when she plays all the characters on Orphan Black, she works with one woman uh, who is kind of who's basically, and she cr- gives her a ton of credit for what she's able to pull off on screen. They've been working together very closely since the beginning of the show, and so she works as a double and basically is playing every scene opposite Tatiana Maslany when uh, when when it's a two clone scene or a multi clone scene, if you will. Um, Meanwhile, on Fargo, uh, when Ewan McGregor was playing, uh, Ewan McGregor was playing brothers, uh, because they were different, different in ages and different in build and so forth. Ewan McGregor actually worked with two different body uh, doubles. Uh, so there was one guy who was playing Ray and one guy who was playing Emmett on the reverse scenes uh, when his characters had to interact. So I'd be curious if Franco is just working with one guy or if he like, maybe for some reason he felt like in order to play the two different characters, he needed to work with two different actors. To clarify, this is like the actor who that, this is the actor that they would be acting with if they were playing, like reversing the scene essentially, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Hopefully that's all clear. Yeah, it's, it's also, I mean, the amount of investment that Franco had in this was pretty, impressive to me i mean he's somebody who is known for his work ethic but i i very much enjoyed i think it was episode three that he directed Mm -hmm. um so he's in front of the camera and behind it and it's the whole thing and you got to map it out and you're living up to a pretty much a perfect pilot done by mclaren so there's a lot Mm -hmm. uh a lot of responsibility there and there's a lot of invention within that episode so i um i've been impressed them all along and yet at the same time I give so much credit to Hall because she's on board as a producer. Um, her character is 
integral. Uh, that's too light of a word, really, for making this whole thing work. If, if she fell out or fell off course or something didn't work about Candy, this whole thing would fall apart. Right. And a lot of that falls on Hall's shoulders. And she doesn't push things too far. Like, she, she's such a good actress in that she's very present in every moment of the scene uh, all the way down to those scenes where it shouldn't matter that much. It's more about the situation mm-hmm. that she's been put in than, than her reaction to it, or she's not even the star of the scene. Um, like when she goes into the bar a lot of the time, it's it's that exhaustion that she brings in, or it's the way she carries herself, the way she sits down. or There's, there's just so much within it that is to be admired, and um, it's hard because <laughs> like, like, a good ense- like any good ensemble, you could probably spend... We could have spent a whole podcast, as I tried to do, talking about just one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could do that with probably six or seven of the people in this, and it wouldn't be enough time. Yeah. Uh, and then, again, trying to deconstruct everything that Simon and Pelicanos are bringing to the table. It's a lot. There's a lot going on in the show. Yeah. And it, it, I've talked to some people who feel like it's a bit busy. Like there's, It's almost like there's too much. And I think that that's only the case because you invite it upon yourself. Like the show invites you in in that way, but you're recognizing that those things are there. The story, the narrative, what's literally being told out on screen is very simple. Mm-hmm. It's it's not hard to follow. It's the idea of, it's it's how all these ideas are brought into it in, in, in this little universe of people um, that really makes it a special show. Yeah. I want to... I feel like that's a really that would be a really great note to leave off on. Uh, but I do want to note that you mentioned Franco's work ethic, which is definitely he definitely is famous for taking on a lot of different projects. But I feel like in upon every once in a while he'll there will be like a period of time where it just feels like Franco's in everything. But that's not necessarily a good thing. Like he's because a lot of some of those projects won't be very good. They'll feel a little slapdash or lazy or just like, hey, it feels like this guy did this on the weekends in like half paying attention while doing a million other things. But I feel like this year we've got the Deuce, which is a really in which he does seem really focused and really dedicated. And he, like you said, he directed and really kept engaged with it. He also has the disaster artist coming out, which you've seen mm-hmm. and enjoyed. Yeah, it's and great. And it, it's been getting great reviews all around. Not that Ben's opinion doesn't matter, yeah. um, just on its own. But yeah. but the point is, is like it, I feel like we're getting entering a new phase of James Franco where he may be not may not be doing as many things as he used to in one year. But the things he's doing are significantly more interesting and better conceived and better executed. Yeah, we'll see. And it's it's one of those things where as as the system goes, so go the stars. And because he's had so many opportunities, he's taken advantage of them. But at the same time, I was thinking about this uh, after watching the the documentary on Spielberg, simply titled Spielberg, mm-hmm. um, in which he was very much talking about how he made certain movies to prepare himself for other things. Like he would experiment with with certain films that were out of his comfort zone because he wanted to push himself towards other ideas. And it was it wasn't that he was ever shrugging off the responsibility of those individual projects. Um, these days, because of you know, because there's more opportunities to produce and there's more content than ever before, you know, Franco can really go a million different directions. And because he's he's got name recognition from early in his career, he can do a lot of different things that are quick and easy. So I I I'm not dismissing anything was just you just said about him doing less and possibly that being better. But the era of him doing a lot could have very much just been a conscious choice to learn and absorb as much as he can and figure out what he wants to do overall. Mm-hmm. Like it could have just been a process where he was immersing himself in so many different things. So one, he would have the education to fall back on and two, he could prepare for, for future installments. And I mean, it's weird. You can you can tell when you're watching a lot of his work when he's at his best and when he's most invested. Mm-hmm. And it I, I don't know if it ever comes down to time because I've never studied, I've never been able to nail down exactly, okay, so he was shooting this and this while he was doing this art project and while he was 
studying this class and while he was teaching at this other university and while he was like I've never been able to put all that together to be like okay well he was just too busy to dial in but I feel like he's he really knows when to step up for the right thing like Mm -hmm. there's those there's those little web series or there's those little things that pop up where it's like he can kind of just do it and maybe like you know people go back to the Oscars and it's like maybe the Oscars was kind of like that maybe that was something where he was brought in to host and it was a one night gig and he just literally thought of it as hosting and maybe he didn't bring us all I don't know I, I I don't know I believe he has said on the record that he was super high that night I don't know if he said it on the record but he's I feel like I up. definitely I've never talked to him personally and I've definitely heard that um well but point but, being but, it's it's when he's surrounded by people like the people who make the deuce right and when he's got a project like the disaster artist which is very much his and there's people holding him responsible in certain ways right um it's a little bit different than when he's just popping up here or there. So I feel like an, even the audiences are starting to know when it's best to appreciate Franco mm-hmm. or to invest or to get excited. Right. Um, and there's that's not to say that some of his other stuff that feels a little bit easier or something maybe he just did quickly can be thrown off because there's, there's worth there as well. But I am very excited after this year uh, to see where he's going and what is what he chooses to do because I think he's learned a lot through the many, many experiences that he's had. He, I, I certainly hope that he will never do what he did when he was shooting 112263 again, which is when he was shooting that show in Toronto during the weekends, he would come down to New York and he would make making a scene, right? which was not a very good web series. No, um, but he's, he's, it's weird. He's undoubtedly, like, just by watching him, he is a much better actor today than he was when he was nominated for 127 Hours. And he was great at 127 Hours. That's not a slight to what he was able to do back then. Right. But I feel like he is, he has honed his craft to a certain degree. Sky's the limit, Franco. Go after it. Um, that being said, Ben, what was the best thing you watched last week that wasn't the deuce? Um, I'm going to give two shout-outs here. Yeah. I always I'm starting to lean into Liz territory where I cheat, but um, starting to the Bob's Burgers episode, the season premiere, where they invited everybody to do fan art, and then they built the episode around that fan art, like they used that within the show, was magnificent. It was a it was a fascinating artistic achievement that was doled out in great small. But sometimes some of them were a little bit longer. Some of them were a little bit bigger. Doses of those of the shifting art forms. So like, you'd have one style for a scene. You might have one style for just a shot, and then it would switch over. There was like a stop motion animation part of mm. Louise just opening a door, um, and then like somebody emerging from the alley. But uh, it never was overwhelming. It was never distracting. It didn't take away from the story. It was still a very funny, enjoyable, quickly paced episode. A classic Bob's Burgers episode. Um, but it was beautiful, and it was fun to see these different interpretations of the characters and also to see sometimes how they crossed over with each other. So I put up a few favorites on Twitter if anybody's you know cares, but you should really just watch the episode because it's very, very good. I didn't mean to check that out. It sounds fun. And then last night I just want to say the episode's uh, series finale aired. If you did not watch episodes, catch up, man. Get on it. Liz endorsement as well. Yeah, Liz, Liz caught up this year. Um, the finale is is great. It's perfect for the show, um, and I had a jo- I had nothing but joy when watching this. So um, those are my picks. Liz, what was the best thing you watched last week? Oh, let me double check. But yeah, my answer is is going to be Mr. Robot. Um, and I have to still write my as as you listen to this. I have still have to write my uh, my season three my season three opener review, which will be spoiler free. For those who have watched uh, the second season, uh, through the second season, it the thing with Mister Robot is it it there's there's so much happening in terms of filmmaking, in terms of twists. You might even say occasionally it it you could even occasionally accuse it of drifting into gimmick territory, but at the same time, it's there's so much there's so much intelligence to it, and so many big ideas and so much self so, so much self-examination that it's just really become a show where even when i don't necessarily when i think that there's a there, they, they've put a foot wrong somewhere 
I am always interested. It's never boring for me. I've never been bored by an episode of Mr. Robot. Like, it's it's so inventive and it's so dedicated to keeping you on your keeping you on your toes. And some of the new twists that they throw into the third season, uh, not actual twists, but just like some tweaks to what we've come to understand before as the show's format, have been really exciting. So. Um, I, I feel like if you're if you are, if you have caught finished season two, season three will be will, hopefully will not disappoint you um, because it's only just continuing what's a re- been a really interesting story so far. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, it is always a formally challenging series. Spoil, spoil yeah, it is. I think that's a big thing. Like it is very it is very tonally, in some ways, cold, and deliberately deliberately um misleading at times i don't know it's it like i said it's not a boring show but it is definitely at times a challenging one which i respect but ben what's the next thing you're looking forward to there's so many things liz there's so many things to look forward to see i had a hard time with this there's what do you have like an infinite amount of things but i'll choose three oh my god (laughs) yeah you're never allowed to accuse me of cheating ever again be prepared everyone Next week's podcast will be about and only about Sylvester Stallone's guest appearance on This Is Us, which I'll airs, have... if you're listening to this on Monday, tomorrow. It airs Tuesday on NBC. It's the third episode of the season. You probably don't need to watch any of the other episodes to enjoy yourself because Sylvester Stallone is in it. And he's probably, let's be honest, definitely great. Thank you for giving me the heads up that I should actually watch this episode. You, Yes, of course. Yeah. So it's alone. <laughs> it's going to be great. So that's Tuesday. Yeah. Um, Friday. Right. Mindhunter premieres. Oh, uh, yeah. The show Netflix, I keep forgetting is happening. Which is just absurd. Um, I don't know. I just keep forgetting. Produced by Charlize Theron. Produced and directed by David Fincher. At least the, a few episodes. And uh, it looks creepy as hell. That's um, part of why maybe I keep forgetting it exists. Period. Setting. I like Jonathan Based on Groff. A true story, Jonathan Groff. He's, he's adorable. He's, <laughs> I, I, probably not going to be the descriptor by the time this is over, but sure. He's Groff Sauce. That's his nickname. It, is it? Yeah. That's weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm very much excited for that. It'll premiere on Netflix. Uh, reviews are embargoed until Thursday, so you'll get a first impression on Thursday, and then I'll be mowing through it as fast as I can. So that's coming. And then, of course, can't say this. I mean, with enough enthusiasm but Holt and Catch Fire is ending you guys Um, the season 4 and series finale is Saturday Um, I hope you've been watching I know a lot of you don't I I need to catch up I'm you know you're behind I'm guilty as much as anyone else but it's been a very 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 strong season and I am very excited to see how they wrap things up because it's hard to imagine Halt and Catch Fire ending. I feel like a lot of the seasons in the past have kind of left things on a note that could be seen as a as a finale. So I'm kind of expecting something similar in that regard, in which it's it's not totally close ended. They're not necessarily going to do a flash forward, six feet under style, and answer a bunch of future questions about the uh, the children of of say Gordon and and Carrie Bechet. But I don't know what to expect. So I'm excited for that finale. Cameron invents the iPhone. God. Well, see, yeah, that's the that's the beauty of the show. They don't seem to encroach too much on reality, even though it's always uh, surrounding them. They're always imitating well, certain people. Well, c- consider this also my thank you for thank you for saying that because it reminds me that uh, I need to talk to our ex- our expert consultants Jim and Janet Miller on this on this very important show. Very true. Um, and the, the you know they, the ha- they have their own AMC uh, screener account. Oh wow! I got them set up with it because I was like, hey. they they needed uh, they needed screener access. There are valuable correspondents. They're yeah. the ones who are telling us if they get it right or wrong. Indeed. So uh, look for we, we, you should definitely look forward to that. Um, meanwhile, Liz, what about you? Because um, I like I said I've struggled to do this list because again I keep forgetting Mine Hunters exists. Um, I'm Mind uh, Hunter. Mine Hunter singular. Um, I need to remember that. Again, I really it's there's something like it's it's kind of like um I'm like a host in Westworld and Mindhunter is like that photograph from the first episode. I, it doesn't look like anything to me. It completely fails to make an impression. I don't it's know weird. why. It's, it's weirdless. I know. I'm probably a robot. 
Could be. Could be. I could be Mr. Robot. That's even weirder. I know. Robots don't have gender. Well, it would probably mean I'm Elliot. Or maybe it's the other way around. You're you're the evil one. That would be that would make more sense. Yeah. But well, twist. Twist. Twist is us. Um, I feel like the thing I put down is that uh, I am looking forward. I watched the season premiere of Scandal and found it kind of a emotionally hard experience just because, you know, this has not been a great week for women in the media and story when you and there's been a lot of really unpleasant stories about the way in which women get treated and just kind of a you know which have always been going on have been happening for decades but as it was weird in that context to be watching a story about an episode of television where basically the women are in charge and are literally running the white house that said, I'm really excited to watch more of it. Like, I think I'm excited for I'm excited for this new season. I feel like they're last season, last season, and they've set like a very they've put out they very much have made some strong calls. Like, there's some very strong statements made in the first episode that I'm looking forward to seeing evolve over the next 17 episodes. I think 17. I believe it is 17. They it's did an a shorter episode. order this year. They had a shorter order, but they could have been much shorter. Um, I think honestly. I would be more excited about it if it was like 10 or 13 because that would imply like they were really just trying to tell one very concentrated story. But I'll settle for this. Do we know? I think I've asked you this before. Do we know if they know where they're going? Like, I mean, they do now, but have they always? I don't believe so. Maybe, maybe like, maybe like season five or so they start talking about it. I'm sure like. That's probably for the best. Rhymes knew. They knew that this was going to be their last season. So they always, they always had that plan. Right. But. I don't know if they knew at the beginning of season six. Yeah. I don't think they, they certainly didn't talk about it at TCAs. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, Scandal, all the, all the things Ben mentioned, including some show called Mindhunter that I forgot about. Um, Special Stallone, guys. Tuesday, NBC, nine o'clock, I think. Yeah. Welcome to this brave new world in which Ben recommends This Is Us. One week and one week only, probably. <laughs> you gave it, what did you give the season premiere again? B plus. Yep. He did that, folks. I like that. I mean, most of the critics really turned on it in the season premiere, whereas I was like, guys, this is literally what they've been doing the whole time. And they've worn you down. So this is actually an improvement because they're trying to, A, tell stories about Kate that aren't just about her being fat, and B, they actually made, they actually gave us enough about the big mystery that's left over, Jack's death. To make you not worry about it as much. Like, it is more of a, a mystery puzzle box kind of mm-hmm. mentality this season. But as we saw in episode two, that's not the focus of every episode. So it's 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 improving by, you know, minute little little movements. Just we'll, tiny we'll little. We'll see, how you re- you, we'll see how you react to Sylvester Stallone. I hope he's in ten minutes. That ten minutes, ten minutes minimum, and you'll be happy. Yeah. Okay, that's a good number. Yeah. You'll be you'll be there with as we. I, th- I think we made this joke last week that you'd be there with a the stopwatch. Yeah. I mean, I know he's in multiple scenes because I've seen like we've seen the photos, but it looks like he gives Kate some valuable life advice. Somebody should. I'm looking forward to that scene. <laughs> I'm a little worried about it, if only because stallone hashtags like all of his instagram posts healthy living Um, (laughs) oh no and he is playing himself in the show so it might turn into another like kate's weight right plot line which would be terrible like let's get away from that but um we'll see we'll see it'll be great all right well you'll be able to read all about that and more on indiewire.com where you'll also find news reviews interviews features all the stuff you like and if you want to hear even more about sylvester stallone's appearance on this is us Season 2, Episode 3, airing Tuesday at 9 p.m. on NBC. Make sure you listen to the Turn It On podcast with our own Michael Schneider. Uh, I don't know what else you could possibly be talking about this week, so that's going to be on the docket. Um, I'm sure that somebody will want to talk to the director and the various producers, set designers, all of the formal people um, who, who helped Stallone reach his peak performance in that episode and that'll probably happen on our filmmaker toolkit podcast with chris o'fault um he's always getting right to the heart of the matter of of what matters most in the industry right now so heart of the matter matters most right 
that's, that's the special one. Uh, and finally, of course, the podcast that started it all, Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson with Screen Talk. And Screen Talk is typically reserved for movies, but when there is an event like this on television that brings a movie star, a three-time Academy Award nominee, a Golden Globe winner, to the small screen, I'm sure that it will come up. So if you if you want to try out Screen Talk for the first time, this sounds like the perfect week to do so. Uh, don't miss any of Andy Wire's wonderful Sylvester Stallone-themed podcast this week and this week only. I'm just kidding. It's every week. Listen. Actual mention of Sylvester Stallone, not guaranteed. Another podcast. All my, all, your mileage may vary. Damn it. <laughs> you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers. You can find Sylvester Stallone on Twitter at The Slight Stallone. And you can find Liz on Twitter <laughs> tweeting about Sylvester Stallone at Lizlet. That's with an I and an E. What, if I, what do I get if I get tweet at least one Sylvester Stallone thing this week? What do you get? Yeah. I don't know. The thanks and admiration of uh, a public who wants valuable insight into television's biggest star. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, if you use any sort of fancy podcasting system that lets you rate, review, or subscribe, uh, you should do all those things. And especially if you like us, but you can leave off if you don't. But uh, it, no matter, no, <laughs> we're ending this podcast. Oddly but... enough. <laughs> what? Oddly enough, when I requested Sylvester Stallone interview for the This Is Us episode, I was specifically told he probably won't be doing much more TV in the future. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, so we just should cancel all podcasts? Yeah, I think we're done. Okay. Just uh, kidding. X-Files is coming back. Oh, that's right. I've got some yelling to do. Um, and some David Duchovny interviewing to do. No. <laughs> Shut it down. Uh, <laughs> guys, thank you always Thank you always so much for listening. And we will be back next week. And in the meantime, keep, keep watching Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> keep watching Sylvester <Sylvester> Stallone. <laughs> We're saying the same thing, right? Goodbye. Thank you.